This episode is sponsored by June's Journey. Do you never get tired of a good whodunit? Then if you like an immersive mystery and a hidden object gameplay as I do, then I'm sure you'll love June's Journey. It's something that whenever I've got a spare moment, I find myself ploughing my way through. I like things that sharpen my brain and my observational skills, and I've found June's Journey to be just the ticket. In fact, I'm a bit hooked on it. In a setting of the glamorous Roaring Twenties, you play as June Parker, an amateur detective who, following the mysterious deaths of her sister Claire and her brother-in-law Harry, makes her way to New York to take care of her niece Virginia, and to try to get to the bottom of what happened to her sister. June finds herself investigating a whole series of mysteries in her quest, a quest that's full of twists and turns around almost every corner, and whilst playing as her, you'll put your own powers of observation to the test, sharpen your sleuthing skills whilst doing so, and relish the thrill of solving the case. you search for hidden clues to solve mystery after mystery across thousands of vivid and immersive scenes, with danger and romance in full force in this thrilling adventure. Free to download, June's Journey is highly playable, very fluid and slick looking, with great attention to detail, and with new chapters each week, there's always a new case waiting to be cracked. Whether you're craving a good mystery, or you just need to get away for a while, June's Journey is the perfect game for you. So like it's 30 million fans and counting, why not kick back, relax, and let your inner Sherlock escape? Ready to awaken your inner detective? Download June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Relationships can take work, and especially the most important one you can have in your life, your relationship with yourself. A lot of us will drop anything to go help someone that we care about, and will go out of our way to treat other people well, but how often do we give ourselves the same treatment? There may be something out there that's stopping you from being the person that you want to be, something that's interfering with your happiness, stopping you from achieving your goals or your wants. Anything can come along and weigh heavily on you. And if any of this sounds familiar to you, then maybe better help is a solution that can help you, because help is something we all need at some point in our lives. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers you video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, it's available worldwide, and you can be matched with a licensed professional therapist one best suited to help you with your needs in under 48 hours. I've found personally that talking to a professional in the past has helped me in my own times of need, so should you need to, why not give BetterHelp a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and the True Crime Enthusiast podcast listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com TCE. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash T-C-E.
Hello all and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, coming to you from what's been a triple season North Wales of late, although it's still constantly bloody freezing in mine of course. The premier North Wales region, one Wally and his bigger Wally of a cat, true crime podcast that looks for those tales you won't know too well, if at all, some that may horrify, some you may not even believe, from all corners of the UK and Ireland. I'm as ever Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. It's me talking to myself without you folks, and I do that often enough as it is really, the wonderful enthusiasts that make all of this worthwhile. And my beloved black and white menace, Pixie, is right here next to me as well, of course. Maybe you can hear his little bell. It's wonderful having you all joining us as it always is, and which I thank you kindly for doing so. And I do hope that as you have, then the episode finds you and yours all good, all safe and all well. Firstly as ever, thanks very much to those who've gotten in touch. Firstly, who sent me birthday wishes between episodes. It's so very kind of you folks, you each and every one rule, you really do. And secondly, for all of those who've gotten in touch concerning the tales of the pair of shy talks we met last time around in the episode, The Ripper and The Angel of Mercy, Michael Hardacre and Andrew Dawson respectively. Now your feedback's always appreciated about these things, because if a format of an episode, say, shorter accounts, but there are two of them, if they prove popular or you think they work well, then that's food for future thought, and the same kind of goes for the Patreon episodes of the show. It's on the Patreon site that I try to do something a bit off the norm for the regular enthusiast, and the previous tale, the two-part Lost Girls of Liverpool, is a prime example. That's the furthest we've gone back on the show in its history, and the tales also contain a bit of the supernatural about them too. Though they were tales I found fascinating, I did think they may be a gamble of sorts, because not only are they unsolved cases, and I know that unsolved cases tend to niggle at some, but they're historical tales as well. Still, if you don't try, you don't know, do you? And the feedback that I've had from supporters who've heard the tales has been very, very positive indeed. So I was very pleased with that, and I shall be sure to cover something similar again sometime in the future. Which brings me on to quite lovely the thanks going out to both the returning and new Patreon supporters of the show this time around. With shout outs going to new friends Lindsay Wallace, Amy Smith, Hattie Snaith, Helena Souza, Anne Wilde, Emily Smith and Angie Fairbanks, plus Jen Mecklenburg, who's opted to annually support the show. It's so incredibly kind of you all to do so, and I can't be more grateful. Thank you so much. Now, you can join these guys and get yourselves perhaps some show merch, certainly a shout-out, and most definitely access to the full series of unreleased bonus tales of the show that being a supporter gets you. I try my utmost to get a new bonus tale out each month, It's never really longer than a month anyway, never really much longer. And as for the unreleased tales that you can hear by becoming a supporter, and I'm talking some unreal tales there as well, the likes of Predators in the Park, The Final Straw, Angel from Hell, or Death in Highgate Woods, to name just a few of them, then you can be hearing these and more for almost less each month than it costs to nick a supermarket trolley, and quicker than my favourite moomin, Kanye West, gets weirder. It's simply the True Crime Enthusiast podcast over on Patreon, or by using the ever-present link in the episode show notes, it cuts all of that out for you and takes you right to it. 
So, this time around then on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, we're off only fairly recently, just a few years back, and to somewhere we've been before on the show, the town of Walsall in the West Midlands. From where there comes a tale that the only word I can describe for how it made me feel when I researched it is sickened, although angered comes a very close second. Although none of the tales I cover here on the show are what you could describe as pleasant ones, there are certain tales that I do feel are darker than others, and to me, I'd say this criterion certainly depends on what section of society we are discussing as the victim of said crimes. I've said several times before that anything involving crimes against the more vulnerable sections of society, be it children or the elderly, I find especially a deeper level of abhorrent, and we've covered some right horror concerning those here in the past, haven't we? But another section that equally falls under the umbrella of vulnerable, and that I equally find despicable, is crimes against those who are perhaps less able-bodied than others, or those with learning difficulties. And the focus of this tale concerns such a young woman, Susan Whiting. Though she was 20 years of age and was a college student, her trust in nature and childlike way of innocence about her meant she made friends easily and could best be described as a person who saw nothing but the good in the world. Sadly, we know that for all the good in the world that exists, so does evil. And sometimes, evil is in the last place that with a trust in nature, you would expect it. The episode contained details and descriptions of crimes and events, including descriptions of a sexual nature involving a vulnerable person that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing. Also included here, almost in full, are sentencing remarks from a Crown Court trial that make for difficult listening, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiasts for a case that I've entitled Shattered Trust. As I said then, we're off to the large West Midlands town of Walsall for the tale this time around, somewhere we've been before several series ago when I covered the tale of the monster of Cannock Chase. A couple of other stats here. Walsall is known as the leather capital of Britain and the world capital of saddle making. A statue of Princess Diana made there in the year 2000 caused controversy when it was created with Indian black granite, leading to several complaints about plans to exhibit it, including from Earl Spencer. And notable people to hail from there include former MP John Stonehouse, who you never know, may just pop up in the show in the future, Olympic gold medalist Ellie Simmons, and musicians Goldie, he of the top hat and sideburns that you come to absolutely bloody hate at Christmas, Slade frontman Noddy Holder, and the master of the Hammond himself, Rob Collins, the late former keyboardist for the Charlatans. And a hero never dies. By the summer of 2015, life was going well for 20-year-old Walsall student Susan Whiting. Although Susan had had a difficult start to her life, She'd been born with learning difficulties and placed into care as an infant. She had, in 1998, at age three, been adopted by Maureen Whiting and brought into a loving family, as the youngest of three children that Maureen had adopted. Although somewhat shy, once this was overcome with people she was comfortable with, with a gentle and loving nature, 
Susan made friends easily wherever she went, and with whichever pastime or interest she had, be it from fellow fans of her beloved One Direction she came to know through schooling, to people she came to meet and who came to know her as a familiar face on the newspaper round that she assisted her mother in doing, and was popular and well-liked as a result. From the family home in Walsall Station Street, in the town's area of Blockswich, Susan's two adoptive brothers, Christopher and Jamie, although fiercely protective and supportive of their sibling, joined with Maureen in encouraging Susan to become as independent as was able for her, which gradually, over time, she did. Mother and daughter were especially very close, having that fabulous type of relationship that you get if you're lucky with a parent, when they're not just your mum or dad, but equally are your mate as well. And with Maureen and her family's support and encouragement, as a young adult, Susan enrolled as a hospitality and catering student at Walsall Adult and Community College in Leemore, soon obtaining herself a job at the on-campus bistro at the site. It was an environment that Susan thrived in and enjoyed, with the college principal, Jeff Baller, remarking fondly upon much later both Susan's cheerful nature and the great academic progress that she was making as a student there. Studying and working part-time at the college aside, Susan also found time to volunteer at an after-school club run by her mother and to regularly attend a community centre in the Blockswich area that offered a regular support and friendship group for those with learning difficulties. And it was here in 2013 that she met a woman who she would go on to develop a great friendship with, a 35-year-old Blockswich woman named Julie Beards. Fast becoming friends because of their shared love of Disney, the two soon became a regular fixture at each of these meetings as doing almost everything together. I say almost because whilst the younger Susan was happy to equally share her time and attention amongst other friends as well, it soon became apparent that the older Julie was somewhat possessive and was always seemingly vying for the sole attention of the younger woman she affectionately called Sis. Nevertheless, this didn't seem to cool the friendship between the two any, and Susan became a regular visitor to her friend's home, a bungalow in Blockswitch's Heather Close, just half a mile away from Susan's own home in Station Street, which Julie shared with her 34-year-old husband, a jobbing gardener and handyman named Stephen Beards, and where the two would hang out together, watching Disney films, playing with dolls and prams, or enjoying games of house or shop. Susan would also on occasion sleep over at her older friend's home as well, getting to know Julie and Stephen both quite well. Now, it is later reported through researching that Susan's family had some concerns about the amount of time she spent at the Beard's home, though specifically not what these concerns stemmed from exactly. It possibly stems from something that is also suggested, that during such visits, Susan was somewhat uncomfortable around Stephen Beards, although this may have been merely put down to the childlike part of her nature, her shyness and her somewhat naivety. Whatever it was exactly, perhaps caught between recognising Susan's vulnerability while still trying to recognise that she was a 20-year-old young woman and to allow her some independence, Maureen and Susan's brothers didn't see fit to stop her from going around to visit them and to have sleepovers, 
which is exactly what Susan did on the afternoon of Sunday, August the 16th, 2015. Julia had invited her around some days before to stay on that Sunday, and Susan had happily accepted, looking forward to an as-promised afternoon of making loom bands and watching Frozen with her friend, as well as enjoying a cooked Sunday dinner. Maureen had dropped her daughter around to the Beards bungalow early that afternoon, waving to her as she left, and having promised to come and pick her daughter up the following morning at 8am, so she would be in time for college. As she drove away, not for a second could Maureen have imagined that it would be the last time she was to see her daughter alive. When Susan's mother arrived to pick her up at 8am the following morning, as arranged, the door was answered by Stephen Beards, who told Maureen that Susan had already left that morning, which surprised her somewhat, as she knew they'd arranged for Susan to be collected by car. Nevertheless, Maureen was not too concerned by this, merely thinking that she must have just simply passed Susan on the way, and by the time she drove back home, there her daughter would be. But when she got back to Station Street, of Susan, there was no sign, and then Maureen began to feel the first pangs of worry. It was most unlike the conscientious girl to not come straight home from anywhere she was, and with Susan's vulnerability, and it's not a word I like to use and label someone with that, but I would struggle for another word to use to describe Susan, really. There was always that fear that something had happened to her, perhaps she'd gotten lost, or unthinkably, perhaps been involved in an accident. Maureen sure enough retraced the route Susan would have taken home from the Beards, as well as contacted several friends and neighbours to see if Susan was perhaps there. But when all of this drew a blank, by lunchtime, an ever-increasingly concerned Maureen contacted West Midlands Police. The report of a missing vulnerable young woman was taken immediately seriously, for Susan had never wandered off like this before, and within 30 minutes of receiving the call, a patrol car was around to where Susan had last been seen, the Beards' home in Heather Close. Here, both Stephen and Julie Beards told officers the same story that he'd told Maureen earlier that morning. He had stayed out the previous evening, leaving the two women at the bungalow, but had returned home early that morning in time to see her leaving. Though he had offered her a lift home, Susan had declined, looking in a mood, he claimed. Julie Beards, meanwhile, claimed to police that when she'd woken up that morning, she had done to find that Susan had already left. Now, although a cursory search of the bungalow was made at the time, there was no sign of Susan there, so a mass search of the Blockswitch area got underway. Armed with a full and detailed description of her, a team of officers painstakingly retraced Susan's route home from the Beards, while specialist search-trained officers combed the surrounding countryside and waterways, looking for the missing young woman, but there was no sign of her whatsoever. Officers were back around to the Beards' home later that evening, by this time with a full-scale missing persons inquiry active, to go over this story once again, this time to try and uncover further details, such as why had Susan decided to leave before being collected by her mother? Or what was she in a mood about as Stephen Beards had described her? Nothing that the couple said could shed any further light on questions such as these when they were asked, however, 
as they maintained the same story that they'd told earlier. But as Monday became Tuesday, more than one officer on the inquiry began to wonder, how far had Susan actually gotten? CCTV covering her route home had been examined and showed no sign of Susan, so how does someone vulnerable as Susan was disappear so completely within a half mile journey? And why would she have left the Beard's home of her own accord on foot? It soon became the collective thinking for those involved in the inquiry that perhaps she hadn't actually left the bungalow in Heather Close. Was she still there? So, on the Tuesday, the 18th of August, with Susan's family by now beside themselves, and the full fear they must have had by then, you just simply can't imagine, can you? Stephen and Julie Beards were cautioned and arrested on suspicion of involvement in the disappearance of Susan Whiting, whilst the specialist team moved into the bungalow to conduct a full forensic search and examination. The majority of the bungalow was found to be well kept and tidy, with no obvious signs of any disturbance to be found, and nothing to be out of place. What was apparent throughout the property present throughout nearly each room was evidence of Julie's love of Disney. There were DVDs galore, several figurines and glossy and coloured in posters adorning several of the walls. In the second bedroom of the bungalow also, the windows of the room sported a pair of curtains depicting the princesses and snowman from the film Frozen, whilst the single divan bed there bore a duvet cover of the same film. But when moving the divan bed to search behind it, it wouldn't move, being prevented from doing so by something underneath. And a look underneath led searchers to a horrific and heartbreaking discovery. The following morning, a spokesperson for West Midlands Police issued the following statement. Detectives searching for Susan Whiting have found a body at a house in Walsall. The body was found on Tuesday at a house in Heather Close, Blockswich, where officers were searching for the missing woman. The body is yet to be formally identified, but while yet to be formally identified, the body is believed to be that of Susan Whiting. Susan's family continue to be updated on the latest developments and have asked that the media respect their privacy during this time. A post-mortem will take place in due course to establish the cause of death, which at present is being treated as suspicious. The house remains cordoned off while forensic experts examine the property and officers are conducting house-to-house -house inquiries. A man and a woman have been arrested on suspicion of murder. The 34-year-old man and 35-year-old woman, both local to the area, are in custody and are being questioned by detectives. Discovered underneath the single divan bed in the spare room of the Beard's bungalow had been the body of a young woman, naked from the waist down, and with her wrists and ankles fastened securely with interlocking cable ties. The body had been wrapped in a shower curtain, which had then been secured with a portion of green netting and had a black plastic bin bag placed over the head and knotted about the neck before being secured with a black plastic cable tie. A later post-mortem was to discover that the young woman had been strangled, but cause of death was due to her being beaten about the head at least three times with a heavy blunt object, thought to be a claw or lump hammer, which had caused devastating injuries to her skull and brain. 
The presence of the non-benzodiazepine zopiclone, a sedating hypnotic drug, was also found in a system that determined that the young woman had also been drugged at some point before death, and semen found at the post-mortem determined that 20-year-old Susan Whiting, for of course, that's who we're talking about here, had also been raped before being brutally murdered. I should just give you a minute to process that. Horror beyond belief indeed, I'm sure you'll agree. The following day, after revealing at an assembled press conference that the body was that of Susan Whiting, and reiterating that her family had asked the media to respect their privacy, West Midlands Police admitted that they'd visited the house in Walsall 24 hours before the body of missing Susan Whiting was found there, having begun cursory search in the property on the Monday, but only finding Susan's body the next day. They'd also told the assembled media that a check was also being made as to whether officers had had any contact with Miss Whiting before her death, and if details were held of any links between her and the arrested pair. Initial inquiries suggest no concerns or issues had been raised to the force, said the spokesperson. Meanwhile, a full forensic examination of the Beard's home and the surrounding outside areas continued, as residents of the area began to try and process what had happened, shocked and disbelieving at the events. One man, who gave his name as Peter, told the Express and Star newspaper, They took two people away, a man and a woman. He was a very nice man. When he first moved here, he offered to help everybody and offered to dig my garden because I can't get about, you see. He fixed the handrail to my front door. His helper, who declined to give her name, said they were a lovely couple and added, I'm gobsmacked to find out what's happened. We've never had any trouble here. I'm so shocked. Another unnamed neighbour of the couple added, Julie has learning difficulties. She used to push teddy bears around in wheelchairs while we were all in our back gardens. Forensic officers and police have been back and forth since yesterday afternoon. We were told they found the body under the bed, but they look like they've been searching in gardens too, so who knows what they found. Susan knew the couple and had been round before, which I'm told her family were not too happy about. Cops were there on Monday, so how on earth it's took them this long to find the girl in the house is beyond me. I just feel so sorry for the families of everyone involved. While Susan's family grieved in private, others who'd known her gave recollection to her and demonstrated just how heartbroken everyone who knew her was at the loss. Jeff Baller, the principal of Walsall Adelson Community College, where Susan had attended and had recently completed a diploma at, in preparation to embark on a career in hospitality and catering, said, Susan came to us as a young girl and became more confident every year. Last year she completed a diploma in hospitality and catering and worked at our bistro in the college. Susan has always been a cheerful and lively girl and our thoughts are with her family at this unimaginably difficult time. Natalie Newell, a neighbour of Susan and her family, added, Her mother Maureen used to babysit me. Susan had learning difficulties, but she was always bubbly and outgoing. She would always have her headphones on listening to music. She was a lovely girl. I'm just devastated by what's happened. 
This news is really going to rock this community. Everyone is in shock. What's happened to her is just heartbreaking. Heartbreaking indeed, isn't it? On Saturday the 22nd of August 2015, 35-year-old Julie Beard of Heather Close, Dudley Fields, and 34-year-old Stephen Beard, who gave his mother's address of Rowland Avenue, Bentley, appeared at Wolverhampton Magistrates Court charged with the murder of Susan Whiting. In the four-minute hearing, both Julie Beards, wearing a blue top and grey joggers, and Stephen Beards, wearing a green top and grey joggers, spoke only to confirm their name, otherwise looking fixedly at the ground, and were remanded in custody ahead of a plea and case management hearing. At the subsequent hearing, both pleaded not guilty, although Balsumon, defending for Julie Beards, and Bashase Hussein, defending for Stephen Beards, made no mitigation at this stage. Both were then further remanded in custody awaiting trial, which was provisionally scheduled to begin in February of the following year. It was in fact Tuesday the 26th of April 2016 when Stephen and Julie Beards came to trial at Leicester Crown Court, and on the opening day of the trial, Julie Beards appeared in court wearing a pink fleece and clutching a ball, alongside an intermediary appointed by the court to help her, and her husband Stephen, who was in a black fleece and jeans, with slicked back greasy hair. Opening the case, outlining the charges against the pair, who had pleaded not guilty as we've said, Prosecutor Gareth Evans QC told the court, At some time on either August the 16th or 17th last year, these two defendants killed a 20-year-old woman named Susan Whiting. They killed her after she'd been drugged and raped by Stephen Beards. At the time, she was staying overnight at their home, a small bungalow. She was specifically asked to go by Julie Beards. Susan was a friend of Julie and had on occasions visited Julie and had stayed overnight at the bungalow. It seems, however, that Julie Beards resented the fact that Susan had other friends and felt that their friendship was cooling. The court heard that Susan's mother Maureen was due to pick her daughter up from the property the following morning. Mr Evans continued, She never did, because we say that by the time that she arrived, Susan had been drugged, raped and killed, and hidden under the single divan bed. The court heard that between them, they'd first sedated Susan with prescription medicine Julie Beards had stolen from a friend. Referring to how Susan was drugged, Mr Evans added, Analysis showed that a sedating hypnotic drug, Zopiclone, was found in a blood sample taken from Susan's body. She'd never been prescribed that drug and had no reason to take it. It had been administered to her, we believe, in food and drink consumed at the bungalow. Upon searching the bungalow, the police found Zopiclone in a crushed up form in a plastic bag that was found on a tea tray. Julie Beard's friend Matthew Herbert had been prescribed the drug and we say she stole it from him. There is evidence to suggest that she had, whilst visiting him, slipped it into his coffee and watched him fall into a deep sleep. She'd been experimenting with the drug and knew its effects. Once the drugs had taken effect on Susan, Stephen Beards had then tied Susan to a bed with cable ties and raped her, 
before the couple then killed her and hid the body, jurors were told. Displaying a hammer removed from the scene, Mr Evans went on. They killed her by hitting her over the head with a blunt object, probably this hammer here, and by compressing her neck. Mr Evans then showed the jury a diagram of the injuries found to Susan at post-mortem, which included a fractured skull, as well as bruising to her forehead and shoulder. He continued, Having killed Susan, they then set about hiding her body under the divan bed where eventually it was found. She was wrapped up in a shower curtain, then wrapped up in the green netting. The divan bed was cut up, the fabric placed upon the floor, and Susan was placed in the bed, all bound up. We can't say at what time the killing took place, but we know sometime after 9pm on the Sunday night, and before 8am the next day. That was the time Susan's mother turned up at their home to collect her daughter. When she got there, she was lied to by Stephen Beards, who told her that Susan had left the bungalow. Stephen Beards later told officers that he'd not slept at the bungalow in the night, but had returned in the morning. When he returned, he said he saw Susan, and she left the bungalow at about 8am. Beards had told officers on several different occasions that he'd not spent the night of August the 16th at the bungalow, but had gone to his mother's home, Mr Evans told the court. He'd said in an interview that he'd returned to Walsall early in the morning of August the 17th, and had saw Miss Whiting getting ready to leave. He said she'd refused to lift home, and had been in what he'd described as a bad mood. Mr Evans continued, Officers searched under the bed, and sadly found Susan's body on the Tuesday. A black plastic bag had been placed over her head, and secured with a plastic cable tie. She was naked from the waist down, and the body had been wrapped in a shower curtain, that was bound by lengths of green garden netting. Her wrists had been restrained by plastic cable ties that went around her wrists and interlocked with each other. Why she was killed remains a mystery. Was it all about sex, or was it a grudge also being settled? In the wake of the charges he was facing, Mr Evans then outlined to the court Stephen Beard's claims, and how Julie Beard's story had changed, saying, He claims that either Susan was killed when he claimed he was out, or some mystery killer has, after she left the bungalow, caught her and taken her back to the bungalow where she spent the night. Having done so, they drugged, raped and killed her. The prosecution says this is nonsense. Stephen Beard's case that he did not rape Susan is despite the presence of his sperm found inside Susan and the chances of another person producing that sperm is one in a billion. Julie Beards, meanwhile, had initially reported that she'd been in bed when Susan had left. Her original statement to police reading, in part, as follows. She came round at about 12 or 1pm in the afternoon. We watched a film, made loom bands and played on our tablets. We went to bed at about half past nine that night. I didn't see her the next morning when I got up at half past eight. All her stuff had gone. But, Mr Evans said, she had submitted a last-minute revision of her defence statement, changing her story to now claim that she'd gotten up in the morning to go to the bathroom. When she returned, she'd seen Stephen Beards wrapping up Miss Whiting's body, having killed her, and he insisted that she help him. Mr Evans continued, 
Julie Beards may say that she was also drugged by her husband and that she knew nothing about the murder. Up until this morning, both defendants' evidence was the same. Now, Julie Beard says she slept in the same bed as Susan. She said she got up, went into the bathroom, and when she comes out, she finds Stephen Beards having killed Susan and he's in the process of wrapping her up. The prosecution doesn't accept that. She was a willing participant in what went on from beginning to end. No evidence was found from the blood or her hair to show she had been drugged. Until today, she maintained she knew absolutely nothing about the killing and nothing about the rape. We say they are in it together and each continued to play their part. These two defendants are in it up to their necks. Also as part of the prosecution opening, Mr Evans said that as the couple had been taken to court during one of their pre-trial appearances, they'd been covertly recorded, a conversation the transcript of which was read out to the court. According to the prosecution, Stephen Beards had said to his wife on this occasion, Just tell him I wasn't there, alright. You'll get a lighter sentence. Say you had an argument and I wasn't there. I need to look after our stuff. You know what I mean? The police have been at our house. I'll keep sending you money in and I'll come and visit you. Can you do this for me, babe? I promise when you get out, I'll buy all your favourite stuff. You'll have all your toys ready when you come out if you can take this rap for me. Just say it was an accident and you lost your temper. You know what I mean? Can you do that for me, babe? Julie Beards had replied, I can't tell you what I said. I told them the truth. To which Beards had replied, No wonder they kept me in longer. If I go down, you're coming with me. You know that I love you. She replied, Don't start. I haven't done anything wrong. Beards had then said, You're involved as I am. I'm going to spend the rest of my life behind bars. I've done what you asked me to do. I don't know just how much more telling you can get, really, do you? Neighbour Matthew Herbert, the prosecution case being that Julie Beards had acquired the Zopper clone from him in the weeks leading up to the killing of Miss Whiting and experimented with it on him by lacing his coffee, then appeared to give evidence. He described to the court that Stephen Beards was somewhat abusive towards Julie, was often physically violent towards her, and demonstrated an obsessively controlling influence over her, specifically about what she was doing and who she was in contact with. He would even stealthily move around to sneak up on Julie, with Mr Herbert telling the court, When I was outside having a cigarette and Julie was on Facebook, I actually seen him commando across the grass in a fashion like the army do, how they shift across the grass on their front. He was on his tummy crouching, very low like that. Describing how he'd felt in the weeks leading up to the murder, in reference to being drugged by Julie Beards, Mr Herbert had said, It just seemed to be every time I was having a coffee, I tended to get very sleepy after. I could be on my PC with my coffee thinking, I can't be bothered to play this now. I don't normally get off it. It goes on in the morning and off at night. When she came to the witness box, in a squeaky, somewhat childlike voice, Julie Beards told the court her revised version of events that Mr Evans had earlier told them of, that she'd discovered Stephen Beards having killed Susan, and with him demanding that she help him in hiding the body, 
She'd complied with this, she claimed, out of fear. Fear that she went on to claim to the court stemmed from the fact that her husband was abusive towards her, had raped her twice in the past, and had even previously tried to suffocate her with a pillow. These were claims that Stephen Beards denied when it came to his turn to give evidence. In fact, he denied pretty much everything that was put towards him. He denied that he was what Mr Evans described as a sexually motivated violent killer who was attracted to vulnerable women and he denied being attracted to or having any sexual interest in his wife's friend Susan Whiting even though it was pointed out to the court that he had her contact details saved in his mobile phone as Sexy Susan. He had further not drugged her food with the sedating hypnotic drug Zopiclone and denied tying Susan up, having sex with her, or hitting her over the head with a hammer, repeatedly claiming, it's all lies, or I didn't touch her. The semen sample taken from Miss Whiting's body, the one that found a DNA profile matching Stephen Beard's, with a one in a billion chance that it was not him, would suggest that he was a lying sack of shit though, wouldn't it? When this overwhelming evidence was put to him, Beards told the court he had no idea why evidence of his sperm had been found at the post-mortem. He was to claim that he kept a sample of semen in the bathroom of the bungalow because he was thinking of becoming a sperm donor and suggested that someone else must have gone into the home on the night Susan was killed for he'd already claimed that he was sleeping elsewhere that evening although the location varies in differing accounts from his mother's to even in the woods and had used this pot of semen to frame him for rape and murder, even claiming someone else had put it inside Susan. Oh yes, straight up, I kid you not. In response to the suggestion that an unknown attacker must have been responsible for Susan's death, as Beards had suggested, Mr Evans told the court, Are we to believe that this mystery man somehow finds Susan Whiting wandering around after she allegedly left the bungalow, takes her back to that bungalow at a time when both defendants are coincidentally apparently out looking for Susan, that somehow he obtains entry to their locked bungalow without leaving any evidence, and that this man is the one in a billion man who could share DNA with Stephen Beards. Yes, a story as bollocks as it sounds, isn't it? And the lavish inventive reasons behind evidence put to him continued, for example, concerning the transcript of the recorded conversation between him and Julie, Beards bizarrely claimed he was actually trying to help officers with their investigation by probing Julie, because he knew an insider in West Midlands Police who had tipped him off about the van being recorded. Indeed, eh? Whenever he was challenged on points such as this, Beard's tactic was to break down in tears in the dock, leading to brief adjournments in the case, most likely to give himself thinking space, which happened on three separate occasions during his cross-examination. At other times, he would try to elicit sympathy from the jury, saying how he had married Julie nine years before, and for the first two years of their marriage, they'd lived in a tent, or that he suffered from depression and had tried on a couple of occasions to kill himself. But these attempts at winning sympathy from the jury did nothing. On Tuesday the 24th of May 2016, after an almost month-long trial, 
The jury took just over three hours to deliver unanimous verdicts of guilty on both counts of murder and rape in relation to Stephen Beards, although they were still considering verdicts on Julie Beards. Cheers of joy went up from relatives of Susan's who had watched proceedings in the public gallery as the decision was read out, while Stephen Beards buried his face into his hands upon hearing the decision. Two days later, the jury found 36-year-old Julie Beards not guilty of murdering the vulnerable student under joint enterprise with her husband, though she was convicted of the lesser charge of manslaughter. However, they declared they were not likely to agree on a rape charge in relation to Julie, and presiding Mr Justice Green discharged them from reaching a verdict on that count. Sentencing for Julie Beards was deferred until a later date. Her husband, however, was sentenced the day following his verdict, and I've opted to include the sentencing remarks into the episode in detail, which Beards' head bowed down in the dock as he heard, and which read in part as follows, though I advise discretion. Susan Whiting was 20 when you violated and killed her. She had a learning difficulty, and she was vulnerable. You knew this, and you played upon it. You had already shown a sexual interest in Susan, you had her recorded in your mobile phone as Sexy Susie and you'd sent her a text back in April of 2015 telling her that she looked really sexy. However, Susan was not sexually active and she did not like your attentions and she was uncomfortable in your presence. But you wanted to have sex with her and you did not allow her dislike of you to stand in the way of you getting what you wanted. You took the opportunity to obtain drugs with which to stupefy Susan. You cooked dinner for Susan and Julie, and it seems most likely that you laced the mashed potato and the gravy that Susan ate with the sedative drug Zopiclone. It is possible that you also used other drugs. At all events, Susan was drugged, and when the drug began to have an effect, she went to sleep. You waited. Precisely how long you waited is unclear. In my view, you waited quite a long time. But when you thought Susan was still under the effect of the drug, you struck. You removed Susan's clothing by cutting away the pyjamas until she was naked from the waist down, and then you forcibly raped her. You did this with sufficient force to cause a tear in her vagina. There is evidence of injuries to the mouth which the forensic scientist says is consistent with force being used on the lips and mouth. In my judgment, a likely sequence of events was that you formed the intention to kill during the rape, when Susan began to awake or come around. In my view, it is probable that Susan began to show signs of coming out of deep sleep and to say something, and you use violence upon her in order to stop her starting to shout out or cry out for help when she came to realise what you were doing. At all events, you were not going to be deterred or put off simply because Susan was waking. You decided to kill Susan, and you had no hesitation or compunction in carrying out your intention. By killing Susan, she could not tell anyone what had happened to her, and given your history of sexual violence and control, I conclude that also you obtained some pleasure or satisfaction from the violence you then used upon her. It would not have taken long, but over that short period of time, you inflicted sustained and lethal violence on Susan. Susan died from two causes. She died because you compressed her neck. This could have been with your forearm pressing down upon her throat with force, 
or because you tied something around her neck and then strangled her. But you also used your own hammer to deliver a series of vicious blows to Susan's head, which was sufficient to fracture her skull and cause damage to the underlying brain tissue. When you'd finished and Susan was dead, you had to dispose of the body, so you quickly set about wrapping Susan up, which you did with a shower curtain. There is some uncertainty about what actually happened, but there is evidence that Julie helped you in concealing Susan's body. Whatever role Julie played in this, I reject your suggestion that you were too weak to do whatever you had to do. You work as a gardener, and you were strong enough to move large concrete slabs around in the garden. Once you'd wrapped Susan's body, you then concealed it under the bed in Julie's room. When Susan did not return home as expected, Maureen and the others began to search for her. You then set out to trick the police and Maureen's family by denying all knowledge of where Susan was. You told everyone that you'd not been present in the bungalow that evening, though you said that Julie had been. You then offered to help in the search that followed for Susan, and this continued until the police found Susan's body under the bed. However, your guilt was to become plain and obvious. Your semen was found inside of Susan. There is a one in a billion chance that the semen was from someone else. Your attempts to explain that away in front of the jury were absurd. You told the jury that some mysterious stranger or enemy of yours had carried out the rape and killing and then found your sperm in a container in the bathroom and inserted it into Susan. It was even suggested on your behalf that the stranger might have raped Susan, but Julie might have then carried out the killing. You have a history of violence which includes violence in the course of having sex. A draft divorce petition of 2012 and evidence given in the course of this trial, which I accept, shows that in a variety of ways you are a controlling and violent man. You get sexual gratification from inflicting violence upon vulnerable women whilst having sex with them, and you are indifferent as to whether the sex is consensual. The evidence indicates that you would rape your wife and that you also tried to strangle her whilst having sex with her. There was also evidence given during the trial, which I accept, that you tried to drug your wife Julie and tie her to a bed. I have no doubt that this was also motivated by desire for power and sexual gratification through force and violence. You've shown not a single trace of remorse or regret for your actions. The only person you felt sympathy for is yourself. Throughout this trial, you've sought to transfer the whole of the blame to anyone you could think of, including some mysterious man and even your wife. To the very end, when the evidence against you was overwhelming, you stuck to your ridiculous story. The jury, however, have read you for what you are, a sexually motivated and violent killer, incapable of showing even a drop of sympathy for your victim or your family and friends. No sentence that I can impose upon you will ever compensate Susan's family for the terrible loss they've suffered at your hands. You've brought grief untold to Maureen and her family. They've had to listen to the awful details of what was done by you to Susan. And they've also had to sit through the whole of this trial and listen to your refusal to accept even one tiny shred of responsibility for your actions. I also take into account the cold and calculating way in which you then set about concealing the body and Susan's belongings and the elaborate lies you told to the police and to Susan's family and to others 
trying to find Susan in the days following the murder. You showed a callous disregard for the feelings of the family, and by your actions, you increased their grief. There is little to be said by way of mitigation. The minimum term you will serve will therefore be 33 years. In setting this figure, I've been careful to avoid double counting. I've taken the rape into account when setting the minimum term you will serve for the murder. However, to reflect and acknowledge the fact that the jury has found you guilty on this count, I am passing a 10-year sentence of imprisonment for the rape, which is to run concurrently with that for the murder. Please take him away. Now, I know it's a bit lengthy, that was, but it, I think it's important. If you get sentencing remarks like that, I think it's important to put it in, and I wouldn't hesitate for a second. The following month, it was reported that the Crown Prosecution Service were applying for a retrial on the accusation of rape against Julie Beards, after the jury at her trial were acquitted from reaching a verdict on a counter-rape after indicating to the judge they were unlikely to reach a majority decision on the matter. The retrial was granted, and on the 7th of December 2016, the opening day of a new trial, Julie Beards issued a plea of guilty at Birmingham Crown Court. The sentencing remarks, again given in some detail here, are as follows. Addressing Julie Beards, Mr Justice Green said, Today, the 7th of December 2016, you've pleaded guilty to the rape of Susan Whiting and now have to pass sentence upon you for the two offences of manslaughter and rape. You are now in your mid-thirties. You've not had a stable or happy upbringing. You spent your early life with an alcoholic and depressive mother and a father who physically and sexually abused you. You spent time with a series of foster parents. Your education was significantly disrupted and you took a drug overdose in 1999. You've been described as babyish, and in some respects having a mental age of a nine-year-old, and the education attainment of a nursery school pupil. It is a reflection of your immaturity that pushing dolls around in a pram, and watching children's Disney films such as Cinderella and Frozen, are amongst your favourite activities. You are assessed as having a mild learning difficulty which refers to a person with an IQ of less than 70. The psychiatrist Dr Thermomolai stated in his report that you experience difficulty in understanding actions and interactions with people from everyday life. You have been described as impressionable and suggestible. Dr Thermomolai describes you as a very vulnerable individual. In your marriage to Stephen Beards, you were the victim of physical and sexual violence. This included evidence of occasions when Stephen Beards would seek to strangle you during sex in order to stimulate his own sexual pleasure. There was also the evidence tendered by the prosecution that on one occasion, Stephen Beards attempted to drug you and then to restrain you by tying you to a bed, though he was prevented in fulfilling this plan by his brother but I have no doubt that he was intending to sedate you and then sexually abuse in order to further his own sexual gratification and to maintain control over you. There is also the evidence which I accept that you were subject to considerable pressure from him and that he controlled you. He would take your credit cards and money. He occasionally inflicted other physical violence upon you. I'm satisfied that you were genuinely scared of him and because, as the experts have stated, you were suggestible and impressionable, 
you were inclined to do as he asked you to do for fear of violence if you did not. By their verdict in finding you not guilty of murder, the jury has concluded that you did not intend that Stephen Beard should kill Susan, nor did you intend that he should cause a really serious harm. The jury's conclusion was that you agreed with Stephen that he would cause her some lesser level or degree of harm. The jury's verdict does, therefore, focus attention upon that which you have now admitted to, namely the rape. Both Mr Evans QC for the prosecution and your own counsel, Mr Sidhu QC, have agreed, in my view sensibly, that so far as you are concerned, the most serious aspect of this matter is the rape. In coming to an appropriate sentence, I have had regard to the guidelines on sexual offences and to all the relevant factors set out in those guidelines which relate to the harm caused and to your culpability and to aggravating and mitigating features. So far as harm is concerned, your agreement with Stephen Beards led to Susan's death. These were casually connected. The harm which arose was therefore the most serious of all. The agreement that you had with Stephen also led to a level of violence which far exceeded that inherent in the rape itself. I do accept that the overwhelming cause of this harm was Stephen Beard's and your contribution was very secondary. Nonetheless, I have to conclude that the harm caused was high. So far as your personal culpability is concerned, the position is complex. I've considered, in particular, three matters. First, your personal circumstances and the extent to which they make you vulnerable. Second, the extent to which you were subject to pressure from your husband Stephen Beards. Third, your actual involvement in the crimes that were committed. I now turn to your actual involvement in these crimes. There are a number of matters to consider. First, the level of pre-planning on your part. Second, whether you obtained the drugs which Stephen Beards used to sedate Susan. Third, whether you were drugged yourself by Stephen during the rape and murder. The prosecution say that you planned this rape along with Stephen. There is some evidence of a circumstantial nature to support this. Your counsel, Mr Sidhu, says however that you genuinely wanted Susan to come over for a sleepover and that you only agreed to Stephen raping Susan under pressure from Stephen on the Sunday itself. Precisely when you first entered into the agreement with Stephen to rape Susan, it's a matter of conjecture. I suspect it was before Sunday the 10th of August 2015, though quite how long before, that I do not know. For the purpose of sentence, I will proceed upon the basis that your involvement was close in time to the date of the actual rape and murder, but there was not a great deal of pre-planning. I turn to the question of drugs. There are two aspects of this. The first is whether you procured the drugs that Stephen used upon Susan and the second is whether you yourself were drugged. So far as the obtaining of the drugs is concerned, there is, as Mr Evans for the prosecution has argued, some evidence that you obtained the Zopiclone from Matthew Herbert, which Stephen then used to sedate Susan with. This is a realistic possibility, but I cannot be sure about this. I think there is, equally, a real possibility that Stephen Beards obtained these drugs when Matthew was not present in his home. Evidence given in the course of the trial showed that Stephen Beards had set out to obtain drugs from a number of sources and, as I have already explained, he obtained drugs on a previous occasion which he intended to use upon you in order to assault and control you. 
I'm sure that he had numerous chances to obtain the drugs and he had the incentive. Matthew was not always present in his home and he did not lock his doors and there was ample opportunity for Stephen to go in and take the drugs. In these circumstances it would be wrong of me to conclude and then treat as an aggravating factor that I could be sure that you procured the drugs. As to whether drugs were used upon you so that you were asleep during the attack, there is some evidence for this. In particular, there is the evidence given at trial by Stephen Beard's brother that he in the past had sought to use drugs upon you to sedate and assault you. This is exactly what he did to Susan Whiting. It is therefore not far-fetched to believe that he might seek to sedate you before he attacked Susan in order to prevent you stopping him or becoming distressed and calling for help or otherwise doing something which would have prevented him from assaulting Susan. There is also some evidence that at the same point in time as the rape and murder, you ingested certain sedative drugs. The prosecution say that you were not drugged and therefore you were present and alert during the attack. I am not sure about this. I cannot treat this as an aggravating factor. I think it is at least possible that you were sedated during the rape and murder. In overall terms, I consider your culpability to be low though I do conclude that on that Sunday in August, you knew that what you were doing was very wrong and you did nothing to prevent Stephen from harming Susan. On that day, you could have done something to persuade Susan not to stay over. Next, I consider the question of your involvement in concealing Susan's body after the event and in lying to police and to the jury during the first trial. Notwithstanding your immaturity and learning disability, I am clear that you know the difference between right and wrong. You knew that when you were involved with Stephen Beards in concealing the body and when you were involved later in lying to police that what you were doing was wrong. You also knew that your attempt to conceal the truth and to lie would increase the anguish and grief of Susan's mother and family. You also lied to the jury during the first trial in relation to the rape. I take into account that to some degree at least your fear of Stephen and your immaturity played a part in this behaviour, but they're not a complete explanation. The facts of this case do not easily fit into the guidelines as all counsel have accepted. Those guidelines are essentially directed at the actual perpetrator of the sexual assault. If I had been sentencing Stephen Beards only for rape, I would have had no hesitation in concluding that this was a Category 1A offence given that it involved, on his part, substantial pre-planning, the targeting of a very vulnerable young person, the sedation of that person with drugs, and the violent rape of that person causing some physical injury to her. I would also have considered it to be an aggravating factor that his planning of these crimes involved another person who was vulnerable, namely you. A sentence substantially in excess of 15 years, which is the starting point under the guidelines, would have been imposed. It is not, however, easy to fit your case into the categories set out in the guidelines. Mr. Sidhu says this is a Category 2B case with a starting point of 8 years and substantial mitigation to be taken into account. Mr. Evans says this is a Category 1A with a starting point of 15 years. In my judgment, the present case is somewhere between Categories 1 and 2, but subject to considerable mitigation. Taking account of all the factors which have arisen in this exceptional case, which include both the rape and the manslaughter, 
I have concluded that the total sentence before credit for the guilty plea should be one of eight and a half years' imprisonment. The most convenient way to express this is to impose a sentence of eight and a half years for the rape and the same sentence for the manslaughter to run concurrently with the sentence for rape. As to credit for your guilty plea, it has been explained to me that on the first day of the first trial, an offer was made by leading counsel for the prosecution with the agreement of police that if Stephen Beards pleaded guilty to the charges of rape and murder, then the prosecution would abandon the charge of murder against you, provided you pleaded guilty to the charge of rape. I am instructed by Mr. Sidhu QC that in those circumstances you would have pleaded guilty then to the charge of rape. However, Stephen Beards refused to accept this offer. He contested both counts, and in the course of his defence, he said that he was not responsible, and he left the jury in no doubt that in fact you might have committed the murder. The offer that I've referred to was only made at the beginning of the first trial, but it opened up the possibility that the prosecution was prepared to accept a plea of guilty as the sole basis of the case against you. Mr. Sidhu says that whilst he accepts that it would be wrong to seek a full one-third discount, it is only fair and reasonable in such circumstances that you be given more than a 10% discount. He says that it was only Stephen Beard's completely unreasonable approach which prevented you from pleading guilty at a much earlier stage. He says that once Stephen Beards pleaded not guilty, you were forced to defend yourself because to have admitted to rape on a joint enterprise basis then would have increased the risk that you might have been wrongly convicted of murder upon the basis of the agreement with Stephen that you would have admitted to. The lateness of the offer and the fact that you were willing to accept that offer are factors which it is said put your late plea of guilty today into proper context. I have decided I will give you some credit for your plea, which is more than 10%, but significantly less than a full one-third. I have concluded that it is fair and reasonable in all of the circumstances to reduce your sentence by 15 months to reflect the plea of guilty. In conclusion, the sentence that I impose upon you is one of seven years and three months' imprisonment. You will spend half of that time in custody before being released on licence, and time spent on remand will count against that sentence. You will also sign the Sex Offenders Register. Julie Beards is today released from custody on licence. Current whereabouts are unknown. West Midlands Police welcomed the verdicts reached in the case, as did Susan's family. Detective Superintendent Mark Payne of West Midlands Police said following Julie Beard's conviction, We are delighted the jury have come to the verdict they have today. The two have never given a reason why Susan was killed, but we believe the attack was pre-planned and sexually motivated. We will never know, of course, because we've been told a pack of lies throughout by the defendants. Whether the murder was planned or a spontaneous act because Susan was not acquiescent and resisted, or Susan actually was not affected by the drug as expected, we will simply never know. What we do know is that as a result of their actions, a vulnerable and trusting young lady is dead, lured to a death at the hands of this pair, who betrayed her trust, and the evil brutality of these acts really is shocking. I believe Julie Beards invited Susan into a home before drugging her. 
Evidence shows Susan was sedated with drugs and her hands manacled so she could be sexually assaulted. She was then killed, probably with a hammer, by compressing her neck. What we have seen is a lot of planning that's gone into acquiring the drug and the administration of the drug that we believe led to the rape. We then saw quite a lot of effort had gone into covering up this murder. We saw the secretion of Susan's body in a divan bed, and really, that the evil thought and the planning that had gone into this crime told us everything we needed to know about both Stephen and Julie. I welcome the fact both have been jailed, and while this cannot bring Susan back, I hope this goes some way to comforting her devastated family and friends. Can it ever really though? Just think about the words of Susan's mother Maureen Whiting, who added, my youngest, Susan, was a precious gift to me, my closest companion. We spent a considerable amount of time together. Susan was even my volunteer after school club, where we all miss her. My world has been turned upside down. From the moment Susan was reported missing, our lives have been turned upside down. Her death is such a tremendous loss to our family. I've always sought to protect my family, especially as they're so vulnerable. I would always take them and collect them. I feel a terrible guilt that I failed to protect Susan and a strong sense of betrayal that Susan was killed by people she knew and trusted. She was just 20 years old, an easygoing, loving young lady enjoying her life. I know she was loved and will be missed by so many people. We would like to thank family, friends, the local community and all the professionals who have supported us over the past months. We will honour her life by the way we continue to live ours. I can't imagine it would get any easier ever. I really can't. Poor, poor woman. This case particularly struck me and is one that will stay with me for regardless of Stephen Beard's actions, which are foul enough to hear and to have written up for recording anyway. It was considering firstly such predatory action as deliberately drugging a vulnerable young woman, someone who wasn't sexually active, all to satisfy your own sexual deviance. That's horror enough as it is. But to then come out with such a ludicrous defence story as suggesting a stranger had committed the murder, or to even try to get your own wife, herself someone with learning difficulties, to accept sole blame for the crime, to me... It's a different level of evil and callousness, that is. I was also struck and somewhat saddened at Maureen's comment about the guilt that she felt in not being able to protect her daughter. And whilst I'm sure that it must be common in such a situation, it is completely unfounded. Make no mistake, Susan's family have unquestionably no guilt to feel because these were people Susan had trusted, who she believed were friends of hers and that she had nothing to fear from and who broke that trust in the most unimaginable of ways. The only ones who should feel any guilt whatsoever are Stephen and Julie Beards. I found it surprising that given all of the elements to the crime, pre-planning, a sexual motive, the use of drugging to inhibit, rape, murder, concealment of body, endless lies, a not guilty plea, and a complete lack of remorse, the Beards was not issued a whole life tariff, which is why I opted to include the sentencing remarks as fully as I have done, to explain the judge's findings, and I do invite you to have a read through them from the links in the episode show notes, for it seemed to me, based on the evidence presented, 
to be a case that the presiding judge did have to ponder whilst considering sentencing. I included Julie Beards' sentencing remarks as fully as I did, the exact same reason. And sentencing her with the learning difficulties was probably a bit more complex because that had to be taken into consideration. What are your opinions on the culpability of Julie Beards in the crime then? Were the judge's remarks spot on? There's so much that cannot be ascertained concerning her and the level of involvement and pre-planning that she had in Susan's death. And it is one we could debate long, I'm sure. But concerning Stephen Beards, the question is also raised. Had he abused other vulnerable women before? If this is someone with a particular bent of being sexually attracted to those of a vulnerable nature, then had he abused before, with perhaps the victims not reporting it, tragically, perhaps because they were even unaware that what had happened was wrong? It doesn't bear thinking about, does it? It's a horrendous case to have researched and written up this one, and my heart went out to Susan's family and Susan herself because such a betrayal of the trust of someone so vulnerable is heartbreaking, leading to such devastating consequences, and all just so a monster can get his satisfaction. Stephen Beards will be approaching 70 years old before he will ever be considered for release, should he of course live to see that day. One can only hope that he doesn't, and he ends his days behind bars for the monstrous crime he's committed, but if he should, then let's hope it comes at the end of a sentence that each day of which has felt like an eternity for him, all the while living in fear of prison justice. What do you think? I would love as always hearing your thoughts and feedback concerning the case I've brought you in the episode Shattered Trust, which you can do so by getting in touch with me wherever you'd like to, through any of the show's social media links, or by commenting on the thread that's up in the show's Facebook discussion group. Anyway, I'm always happy to hear from you folks wherever. I'd like to remind you before I go as well that tickets for CrimeCon 2022 are now on sale and can be found using the link in the episode show notes, which alongside a fabulous lineup of guest speakers, demonstrations and interactive experiences from the world of true crime, Podcast Row is the place to be and you can catch myself there alongside several other hosts of the shows you may know and love, some you may not know, some you may come away from there becoming fast new fans of. It promises to be a fabulous weekend. The last one was a ripe ball, and I would love to see some of you folks there to say hi to, shoot the breeze with, and put the world to rights, perhaps even have a cheeky couple in the bar afterwards with. If you use the link in the episode show notes, it will take you right through to get your crime con tickets. And if you use the exclusive code ENTHUSIAST at checkout, 10% of the cost of them is coming right off the price and I'm sure I can also sort out a bit of a thank you swag package for you at the event also, if you let me know. I look forward to seeing some of you there. With that, I shall wrap up here and head off to seek out something else for another tale. I thank you so kindly for joining me and the Peaks for an episode that, although depicts a truly horrific crime, and it's awful, it's one of the worst that I've come across this one, I hope it's one that you found interesting and informative nonetheless. And all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, stay safe, and goodbye for now.